Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. He just covers a lot of things to do with the congregation. And that's why I'm doing it because I've had comments such as that about the church. What, what's it about? Uh, how, is it, uh, how is it to be? What's it look like? Well, we want to look like the apostolic church that was, that was put together in the first century. Now, in saying that, it doesn't mean we need to uh, do everything in error the way that they did because people make mistakes, don't they? And, but that's what's covered here and covered in a way that is useful, very useful to us, each one of us, in the way that things are explained and brought into light. And we're in the first chapter. We're going to be picking up about about verse um, 20. But before we do that, I want to say a couple of things um, in way of introduction to, to this, just to kind of expand on what we've already looked at. Um, It's been my observation through the years that in light of the, the workings and the words and the deeds of what we call religious scholars, they seem to spend far too much time reading between the lines. I don't know about you, I have a hard time reading anything between those lines. Now, I know you could write a commentary between those lines. Hopefully you'd get it right. But they spend far too much time reading between those lines of, of God's Word that God gave to us. And my idea or my thought questioning them is, what are they searching for between the lines? And believe it or not, they use this terminology about reading between the lines in reference to uh, what it really says or something of that sort. But we have to be careful with that. Some have said that they do so to have and to build a good argument against the clearly worded teachings and things they find within God's Word. In other words, have some ability to counter or stand opposed to something that is clearly taught because of the circumstances of some kind. Now, I wonder, because we're going to read a verse here, verse 20, that kind of deals with this. I wonder, are the scholars finally ready to debate God? You know, that, that's the thing. Because that's what you're setting yourself up for. If you've ever studied Job, and we did it here for about two and a half years one time, way back. Uh, Job wants to confront God with his side of the story, chapter after chapter after chapter. And then when God finally demands he stands up and speak, 
He can't think, he can't have, nothing comes out. And he can't answer many questions either. That's, that's what I worry about. Okay. I wonder, um, because debating God on the truth and action of, of his words, uh, and, and how he has dealt with mankind from Adam to the present day, I think is a little bigger task than our scholars think it might be. Even though God has been open to reasoning with his creation man. I've read that in the Bible somewhere. Come, let us reason together, God says to the people of the first covenant. How much more open could a creator be with his creation than to actually want to have a conversation with them? I think that that's a key to the nature of our God. To believers in God and those that believe his word, it seems really pure folly to question God or his motives. And yet we find that it's done uh, quite often. The Son of God, Jesus, said of his Father that he was spirit. He also said concerning his Father that his word was truth. He also said that he loves mankind. John 3.16 These things Jesus said and more. The apostles said that God was love. See, when they woke up in the morning, that's what they knew. The God of heaven loves man. And he wants to reconcile them back to him. And that was the task for that day and every day for the apostles. To go out and speak the word of reconciliation that we call the gospel to men and women everywhere. The world's rebellion towards God is not driven by the knowledge that God is not what he says he is, but rather it's driven by the fear that men and women have that they are acting and doing exactly as God has shown they are acting and doing. And many of those things that they say and do will be subject to judgment. That's the that's the seed of rebellion. That's what it really is in the heart. You know, you can put a, a smile on and speak poorly towards God. But these things must be, in all things, will come to light. What was your intent? So rebellion is an issue that we need to understand. But even though we find this attitude in the world, and we look back in the scriptures and we find this attitude is not a new thing. We don't, we don't invent rebellion and things. that No, it goes all the way back. Yet, as we 
listen to the apostles message we find that God is seeking to to reconcile rebellious men and women back to himself and has done so by sending his son to the world to shed his blood so that can actually become a reality so an argument against God or reading between the lines you might miss out as to what's really happening we, we are reconciled through the gospel of Christ and the terms of pardon that God has given us it has to be through Christ and it has to be according to the terms of pardon for us to enter in to the kingdom of God Oh, that men may know the God of the scriptures. Because they don't, in, in, in a large part. So, starting with verse 20. Uh, and we've been looking through, or we've been studying from uh, uh, Young's literal translation. I like it. It doesn't have any extra words or it really doesn't have many inappropriate or bad translations that I've found. So in verse 20, what does the apostle say? He's made this argument, of course, he's talking about uh, a problem within the church. The first one he mentions, which is a serious one, about those naming men uh, as those that who baptize them and somehow that means uh, they are in some uh, way a higher importance. Some said uh, Paul or, or, um, or Peter or uh, Apollos. Some said Christ. So in verse 20, Paul once says this, Where is the wise? Where the scribe? Where a disputer of this age? Did not God make foolish the wisdom of this world. I want to look at Isaiah 29, 14 and 15 also. Uh, because this isn't, wasn't a new thought with the apostle. Men should have known this. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelous, marvelously with this people wondrously marvelous and the wisdom of their of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed it's good to be wise and intelligent and all in this world but remember compared to the wisdom and the knowledge of God it doesn't compare we're students of what God has given us. We're never going to teach him or catch him in an error. So the rhetorical questions that Paul gives, where is the wise and the scribes and the disputers of the age? Well, uh, you know, these are the leaders and the teachers of the people of any generation. Uh, the last one being the debaters. Um, 
the skeptics. Today we have skeptics that debate the relevance of God or the existence of God. It's, it's hard to find any information to, to build that side up. Since all the information, everything we have, shows exactly the opposite. I'd hate to be on that team. Where's the wise and the scribes? You know, those were the, the uh, uh, we might call them the lawyers or the, the recorders. The elite. All the elite. The elite in every sense here. And that's what Paul, the apostle is saying. You rebel against God? Where are you? What's your word? What's your proof? I've yet to hear any argument that holds any water. Then in verse 21, because all these things tie together, of course, uh, this starting, uh, actually there's a statement here, verse 19, and well, it goes all the way up from, um, I think, verse 14 and down. But in verse 21, Foreseen in the wisdom of God, the world through the wisdom knew not God. It did please God through the foolishness of the preaching to save those believing. He says a lot here, of course. But I immediately think of the fact that man's wisdom did not recognize the God of heaven. Um, I did, did a series here a number of months ago about Daniel. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is a perfect example of a man that did not know God, but came to know him through experiences. And he had some rough ones. But he came to understand that he might have been king of the greatest empire in the world of his day, but he had a king. And that's what he came to understand. Not everyone does come to that understanding. Man's wisdom does not recognize things of God many times. Man's wisdom did not recognize the Redeemer that Israel had been waiting for for centuries before. Did not that's the first chapter of the Gospel of John it talks about that. That his his knew him not. If they would have just listened and watched and and observed what he was doing, saying, and and how he was living, they would have known by the old scriptures that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, especially the way things turned out as far as the cross and the, uh, the uh, resurrection. And then his apostles, all of it was there. Because they were both clearly seen. God is clearly seen and so was his son. His son was seen in the flesh. The son of Mary. The son of David by the flesh. And certainly their king. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20. Talks about God. 
Romans 1, 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul also writing here, speaking to the, to the Jews in large part here, but he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Does God have opportunity to know man? According to the Creator, he does. By the elements that they see around them. I think anyone being honest would recognize that all of what we have in creation had to come from somewhere. And if you've been living long enough in this world, you'll find that most of the folks that they really are not capable of making much of this. I mean, we do a good thing. We can cut down a tree and make a house out of it or furniture. We think we've done a good thing, but how about the tree? And the dirt it grows in. Yea, the world of men is without excuse, says God. For God has clearly manifested himself in all of his creation. And did the Jews of 2,000 years ago see God? Did they see the Father in the Son? I think some of them did. Certainly did. He was clearly seen in Jesus of Nazareth. Very clearly spoken of by Jesus of Nazareth. And the other thing, you see, God has already made foolish the wisdom of men long before this verse was written. Um, God had been doing that for some time. And it's not that he set out to do it. It's that men do things that cause themselves to fall into that category by thinking their wisdom is the wisdom of heaven or the wisdom of God and, and that sort of thing. And, of course, that's another, I think that's another strong proof of the idea that uh, we know that we are not uh, puppets in the world we live. We know that the idea of Calvinism, that we are uh, somehow orchestrated every minute of our lives and everything's been decided, is absolutely a falsehood. And men can get to the point as the man I was mentioning, King Nebuchadnezzar, he really, he really would have liked to thought that he was the most powerful thing in all the universe or all the creation. But he came to understand, and you know, he was willing to learn. He was willing to learn. He, it, it didn't come easy, but it, but it did finally come. He came to his senses, basically. And if you would be, if you would have been the king of 
of the Babylonian Empire, you would have had a little harder time giving up that that hierarchy position that King Nebuchadnezzar did. You know, we have the same thing in, in Christendom today. We've got people that try to assume a high position in Christendom where they literally say they are speaking for God. But you know, we've already had that. Those men are come and gone as the apostles of Christ and the Lord himself. And you know, we don't need anything else because nothing else is authorized. And I'll tell you something else. If we're not going to believe Jesus of Nazareth and his apostles, I don't think any other man that follows is any more believable. Thus, and this is important, God, through the foolishness of preaching the gospel, and it was foolishness to those that were unbelieving in the message, saved those believing ones. Through that gospel, there, those that believe it, believe the power of God, believe the workings of God through his son Jesus Christ, have salvation in his name. So, does it work? That's the question. Is the gospel enough? Is God's uh, uh, offer of pardon enough for people? Well, I think it is. But all of this, all of this is contingent on our faith. Because we need to come to a faithful opinion concerning these things. And every soul that is capable of hearing, reading, understanding, or maybe not all of them, but at least understanding uh, through whatever medium that there is for them. And all of this through God's word, the declaration of it, the preaching of it, however it comes to them. They have the ability, they can, by themselves, come to repentance, become a child of God, responding to those terms of pardon that God has set. We, we feel sorrowful many times that this is not the condition of the world we live in. But it could be. But there is a matter of faith. There is a matter of believing. There is a matter, matter of, of uh, comparing the, the knowledge and the things of God to the things that we are, have been told or the things that we're doing and see where these things match up. What's more important? The key, or the, the, the finishing idea there is uh, through yours and mine, our personal decisions, these heavenly promises that God has offered us can be ours. They truly can be by the very word of God, by the word of his son, and by the apostles that were sent out on, at the day that he ascended on the day of Pentecost when they preached 
And no man-made institution can promise you that in truth. They can't promise you that. Because certainty of salvation doesn't really exist. If, if you're certain of it, then, then you're already there. Then you already have it. But faith, faith is how we live. We live in faith, not certainty. If you have to be certain of this in some certain... You know, we think we're certain on a lot of things. Have you ever really worked on something and you're certain that it's right? You're certain that it's going to work? You're certain of that? You know, sometimes we find out our idea of certain really wasn't, really didn't cover all the issues. So give up on certainty. When it comes to the things of God, relegate yourself to the idea of faith Faith in the revealed Word of God and the things that He has for us. So the apostles preach the wisdom from God, not from men. And you know, unfortunately, this is where we've departed uh, the apostolic doctrine. Because much preaching today or 100 years ago, 500 years ago, was not the wisdom of God, but it was the, it was the wisdom or the collaboration of men uh, to set up a system of some sort of faith uh, that they felt was what God really meant, rather than what the scripture says itself. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, verse 20, or chapter 1, 22 and 23 because Paul goes on to say concerning this idea of wisdom since also Jews ask a sign and Greeks seek wisdom also we we preach Christ crucified to the Jews indeed a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness. And the Greeks would also include, of course, the Romans and, and all those outside of um, uh, Judaism. Because the comparison here is between the, the mindset of the Jews and the mindset of the rest of the men in the world. They had different requirements for what it caused them to respond to it as a truth. The Jews required a sign. How many times did people ask Jesus to perform another miracle? And he'd already he performed miracles that were beyond any, any understanding. And yet they wanted one more. And that's the way it is with miracle workers today. So-called miracle workers. You're only as good as the next miracle that you see. Don't let too long a time come between those miracles because if you do, you're going to find yourself all alone. That's not, that, that's not the way it works. Uh, and, and that's why Jesus wouldn't allow that sort of thinking. Um, in Matthew 12, verse 38 and 39, the Jews require a sign. And uh, it, act, it really happened. 
And we need to be aware of it, but mo most folks aren't. Um, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he went on to explain, but you see, that's not when miracles were performed. Miracles had, miracles were a bridge uh, from one position to another. Every miracle was there for a very specific reason. Um, that was that was for the benefit of of the people in general, if you will. It wasn't a sideshow. Also, in sixteen four, um, I think we find the same thing. We find this in many places in the scripture. Yeah, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And the sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. No miracle today. Not under those circumstances. That's an affront to God. And if he had done one, maybe somebody would have said, well, that's not too bad. How about this? You see where that goes? They missed the point completely. That's not what miracles are for. And the Greeks seek wisdom. What do the Greeks require? Well, you think about Acts chapter 17, when Paul was taken to Mars Hill. You know what they were expecting and they wanted? They wanted a real orator to start speaking to them and telling them some things that they had never heard before. That's why they got up in the morning to learn something new. Oh, he told them something new. He told them something very important. Skillful speaking, oratory, uh, excellence, that sort of thing. Um, let's look at Acts 17, just, just two verses, 22 and 23. His sermon on Mars Hill. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to tell them about the God in heaven. By the way, the word ignorance wasn't, wasn't an insult. It simply meant, and they understood the language, simply meant they were uninformed. Why else would build a statue to the unknown God? He went on to inform them of the one true God. They were intelligent. They were attentive. They had a zeal for learning. Probably even a zeal for life, although not all of them held that. There were two groups within there. Some were kind of dark characters and others were uh, more active. But they had not faith in the God of heaven. That's what they lacked. Do we find that today? That exact same thing in our society? Of course we do. 
course we do. We find that. I'm going to read verse 24, but we've run out of time today because I want to expand on verse 24. Uh, There's two points in there about the calling and the power of God that need to be understood. Verse 24 says this, And to those called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's the thing I want to leave you with today. When we read things like that, we have to understand that this is an apostle of Christ. This is inspired writing. This is a message from heaven itself in these descriptions and in these words. It has so much meaning. And and you, you can't hardly find a verse that isn't replete with that sort of a situation. And we've been studying in the adult class here in Acts 3 verses <laughs> that just to read them, you can read them pretty quick, but what's being said? Well, what's being said here? That wasn't written. That is just not uh, uh, some sort of a flowery thought that's supposed to give you good and warm and fuzzy feelings about God. It really says something. It says something about the person called and it says something about the power of God. Both things are necessary for us to have any hope in life after this. We must come to understand these things. I hope to thank you for your attention today. And hope that you will be excited to continue to look at 1 Corinthians. I know most folks have read many times 1 Corinthians and even studied it. I want to present it in a way that maybe some of the things that I didn't understand to start with the first few times through. I hope that's your experience. All right. We have our song of invitation. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.